0: Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. A reminder that for Patreons, uh, episodes are released every Friday as early access. So if you'd like to get early access to episodes, it's $1 a month and it goes into supporting us in the content that we create and the technology that we use uh, in making this show. Today's guest is Simon Prentice. Simon is an experienced interpreter, translator, and author. He worked in Japan for many years. He's worked as an interpreter for Eric Clapton, Philip Glass, Jane Goodall, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney, I believe, uh, Sir Richard Rogers, Sir Ringo Starr, Sting, and Frank Zappa, among many others. Uh, Simon has recently wrote the book, Speech, How Language Made Us Human, and today is here to tell us about his book and how language has created both our consciousness, uh, our our ability to obviously communicate, share stories, develop society, progress as a species, but it's also limited us. And he shares how that is. He also tells us some, some very fun stories about working with Paul McCartney. So you're going to enjoy that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy. Be sure to send us uh, an email uh, on ideas for shows or for feedback. Our email is robsprobablywrong at gmail.com. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. You're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. Right, we have with yeah. us Simon Prentice. Hi, Simon. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. You're welcome. So you you've recently wrote. You've worked as a translator. Uh, you, you've translated for Japanese um, between Western cultures and Japanese cultures, and that's sort of where you you started, and that inspired you to write your your recent publication, Speech how language made us human. Right. So how long has this book been in in the works for? (laughs) I would say 30 years. (laughs) Because I I kind of talk
1: about it in the introduction to the book, but I I went to Japan, I was drawn to Japan because I was studying a thing called Aikido, which is a a martial art. And I, I went there originally thinking I'll spend a year there figure it all out and come back home and do whatever else I was going to do, which I hadn't really figured out at all. But still, I ended up staying in Japan and uh, then one thing led to another and I, I realized that I could uh, make a living out of translation and interpreting, which are two different things really. Interpreting is the spoken thing and translation is, is the written thing. But um, it was really my experiences as an interpreter that, that started me thinking about writing because I would find myself in, caught between two different worlds if you like because you know on the one hand you you're having a conversation with one set of people who are in their world and you understand their world and then you switch around to another set of people who are having their conversations in their world which is you know that they're, they're two mutually exclusive worlds to the to the two parties and you mysteriously have the key to both worlds mm-hmm. and you can sort of see what's going on and they're both kind of Equally suspicious of each other, and they think that you know the other side is kind of weird because they do that stuff or think that way. And, and you think, well, what you, you both guys are thinking the same weird stuff about each other. That's a bit crazy, isn't it? So <laughs> I thought, let me—I I wanted to write about that. I just wanted to kind of show up the absurdity of, of how we all tend to be very suspicious of things that we're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so, at, particularly at that time, the people in the West used to talk about the Far East. I'm not sure we really talk about the Far East anymore, but at the time we did, especially my parents' generation. And I just thought, you know what, from a Japanese perspective, looking at, at the West, it looks like the Far West. You know, I mean, these guys, are, they're crazy. They're off the scale the other way. So I, my original idea was to write a book called Far East, Far West. That was just going to kind of throw up the contrast between the two. And then one thing led to another. I got busy, and I could never really quite sort of... Come up with what the final shape of it was going to be like. It was just like a set of stories, and that didn't ever feel like enough. So one thing led to another, and I began to think about language in a slightly sort of deeper way, and not see it as two separate things, but as a as a much bigger picture. You know, what are we doing when we speak language? What, what's actually going on, and why does it tend to make us feel this way? You know, why do we get stuck into our own little world and think that that's the one that's the you know the right way of doing things and everything else is wrong and all that i mean it's it's like individuals individuals in a way are like that too but culturally speaking it's 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 a much sort of bigger picture so i thought okay i wanna i want to sort of expand on that and and make that a more general point than being something about just japan and england also i was working at that point i started to work in other countries too because clients would say to me can you can you come with us to you know other places so that we can so i was often working through other interpreters so i was dealing with other cultures as well it wasn't just english and japanese it was looking at you know the middle east europe and, yeah. and other parts of the world and so then it became a much more general thing so at one point i was I, the, the the working title of the book was same Shit, different bucket yeah. <laughs> which, was an Australian expression that some guy told me one day and he said, Oh, that's what we say. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. I
0: got it. Same shit, different bucket. And I was like,
1: mm, okay. But
0: then it became what it is now. <laughs> and when I was when I was reading your book, it was for what came to mind is the German language and how there's very okay. specific words for kind of nuanced things, like for example, Zeitgeist mm-hmm. or Schadenfrud. Yes probably not saying that word right but zeitgeist describing the nature of the culture at this period of, of time sort of the the idiosyncrasies spirit of the time is what it means zeitgeist yeah. zeit time and geist is spirit so it's you know but but what i loved about what you said is that you know in, in our culture we might say oh is there a word for that in in your your language and of course there is it's mm. we're only limited to what we're able to to think it's not that we're necessarily limited by, yeah. by language.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, it's uh, and, it's, and it's also that, you know, we tend to think if we're not really had much experience with other languages, you tend to think, oh, well, let's just look it up in the dictionary, because whatever that word is, it'll be, there'll be a word for it in the dictionary. But that's very rarely the case, you know, um, it, because languages are structured differently. So they they don't necessarily. Refer, I mean, even a word like water. I mentioned this in the book. But water, you think that's got to be pretty standard across the world. We all need water. It's one of the most important things to human life. But in Japanese, for example, there's there's two words for water. There's the standard word means it's mizu. It means cold water, and only cold. Water. So if I want hot water, there's another word for that. It's not hot water. It's oyu, which means hot water only. So They they have two different words for it. Now, that, that probably seems weird, but then again, in English, we have words where we have two or three different words. Like, for example, customer, passenger, guest, visitor, those words are all the same word in Japanese. You know, they don't so discriminate. They could do, but they don't normally. So each language has got a different way of slicing things up. And right. You can always say what you want to say, but you may not say it in the same way, if you see what I mean.
0: So the one thing that, that was really fascinating is how language has evolved over time. And mm-hmm. and you, you talk about in the intro of the book, um, the one thing that the Bible got right was in the beginning there was the word. Yeah. So how how has language evolved? I mean, you think about dogs, for example. Like in my backyard, my dog will bark at the other dog in the neighbor's yard. Mm. I have no idea what it is that they're saying, Mm. uh, but my my hunch is that yes, your your hunch is what my my uh, yeah my hunches are communicating. You know, they're saying something. But really, what language is 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 it it sounds that we we agree on the meaning of them. Like, like there's so many hidden agreements in language when you really sort of deconstruct, do the whole reductionist thing on it. It's like, Whoa, language is so, but it's almost like breathing. Like you say, it's it's so much of it is involuntary, the agreements of it Mm -hmm. that, you know, if we really stop and think, Oh my God, like, like, you know, how my body works, but you can't, do, do as you think, as you may, you can't stop breathing, right? Do as you may, you can't stop communicating. Correct. So, how has language evolved over time? Like, well, that's, tell the, us that's the story of it,
1: yeah. Well, that's, that's the big question. And then the extraordinary yeah. thing is that we don't really know yet. I mean, the officially, we don't know. Uh, if you look in the, in the language textbooks, nobody actually has an answer. Even, even Noam Chomsky, who is like, you know, the great great linguistic, he, 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 linguist, he says, we don't know, it's the, it's the great mystery. So what we do know, however, is that, that, that when you look at the way your dog is communicating, for example, it, it, when a dog is barking, you can have all kinds of different tones of barking, but it's a bark, you know, so it'll be like a, fuck off yeah. bark. <laughs> I can say that on camera. Of or, course. Or, <laughs> You know, a cute bar, but it's yeah, it's a bark. That. and the bar is not divided up into into bits of sound that can be chopped up and changed. Now, the thing about in thing about language is that it's made up of vowels and consonants. To use the the term that most people understand, now linguists call that phonemes. You know, they they just mean they're individual sounds that can be switched up. I mean, just take dog and god for example. You know, dot. If you put them the other way around, it's and it's two completely different meanings, but it's actually the same sounds. But because we do that, we can make as many noises as we like. We can. It's, it's like numbers. I I use the example of numbers a lot. You've just got ten numbers, one or zero, counting zero to nine, just ten digits. And by mixing those up, you can say any number you like. You know the longest number you want. You know what let's say say you no. Know, 170,433 or something. You know, that is a long number. If you just imagine you had a different noise for each of those numbers along the way, you get you get lost about sort of 25. Right. But because it's a system, you can remember them. Now, it's the same with with words. Words are made up of noises, just a small group of noises. And we use those just like digits, just like numbers to make words. Every word that you say is just a combination of a very small number of noises and that's why we can make lots of noises. Now, no animals do that. Well, that's not quite true. Some animals make a few little combinations, so they're kind of on the way to it, but we've cracked that as, as, a, as a means of doing it. Somehow we did that. Now, if you ask the, the linguist, they'll say, one day something happened, there was a change in the brain and we were suddenly able to, to do that. And it's like, Hmm. Okay, what's your evidence for that? Uh, well, we're still looking for it. We, uh, we uh, You know, we're not sure. But I, I'm, I'm saying that I think the crucial difference between what we do and what animals do is that we use digital noises. You know, we just use sounds and put them together in a digital way, just like numbers. Whereas what your dog does and what a cow does or a sheep does is they just make a number of just Limited noises that can't that aren't put together, so it's like you can go, mmm, or, mmm, right? Or, or, or something, there's just they're just noises, they're what I would call analog sounds. But because language puts them together, then you've got lots of words you can use, make you can make plenty of words, and then it's about organizing them so. Then you get grammar. Grammar comes afterwards, but until you have words, you can't have grammar. So you know, that's it. Sorry, <laughs> that's possibly a bit too much information.
0: No, I mean I I love it because I think I I make jokes about how you know primitive men, primitive people communicated, yeah. and yeah. you know surely like we we put a, a politically, sociology sociologically speaking, we put a lot a huge emphasis on the individual. nowadays but in order to have to have gotten to this point where we are in society there had to be a high degree of cooperation and competition but let's just focus on cooperation and that's language when you and i communicate we're this whole conversation is an agreement even if we're not agreeing in what we're saying Mm -hmm. we're still agreeing on the words we're using Sensitive. because in order for me to be offended i have to agree with the words that you're saying like there has to yeah. be a response yeah so so i i wonder like you say like there was was it a moment was it a moment or was it a gradual evolution you know you talk about the the 4.5 billion years or 3.5 billion years yeah, yeah, yeah. that it that, that it took us to get to this point Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. but
0: I, I i really i wonder about the grunts like like when we were together saber-tooth tiger over there surely mm. we had to communicate like you know the difference between er and like mm. a you know like like there had to be some level of sophistication because sure. like you say i think that language is what allowed us to develop stories as yuval noah harari discusses yeah, yeah. and it was from the stories stories using grammar, that, boom, we're able to share our ideas.
1: So the right. question is, how do we get to that point? Now, yeah. in, his, in Sapiens, you know, he, he says there were three great sort of revolutions. There was the cognitive revolution, the agricultural revolution, and the scientific revolution. These, right. these, that's kind of the core structure of that book. And so he starts out saying, about 70,000 years ago, there was a cognitive revolution. And then we had language, and then we could tell stories, and you think, "Okay, good. What was the cognitive revolution then? How did that happen? Ah, mm. uh, well, I don't know, but it just happened you know, and then you think that can't be right <laughs> how did well we it could be right, but there's absolutely no evidence for it and secondly, how would that work? Whereas what we do know about language is that it's it uses sounds in just the same way as every other animal uses sound but To go back to your scenario with the saber-toothed tiger, you know, other animals already use warning signals. We know that, although we're not really, we haven't spent enough time looking yet because we haven't really dedicated the resources to it. But we know that certain monkeys, for example, will use different sounds that mean an eagle or a snake or a leopard. You know, it's the classic one, the verbit monkeys. So they use three sounds that are understandable by that tribe, you know, by that species that are not understandable by other animals. So they're like random noises that mean certain things. So it's, it's part of their culture. But they haven't got any more noises than that to talk about like, you know, what the score was in the game the other day between the right. legs and the tigers or whatever. It just sort of, they don't have enough <laughs> range to do that. And the reason they don't have enough range to do it is because they haven't put words, they haven't put sounds together to be able to make more sounds. That's what I'm calling the process of digitization. It's right. just about putting numbers together. If you've got like two sounds, ah uh, and e, ee- let's say, right. Now if you said ah means snake and e ee- means tiger, let's just say, now you could you could actually use those two sounds to make four sounds. You could say ah ah means sandwich and e ee- ee- means sex and right. uh, ee- means ice cream and ah. Ee- uh- Means dog, for example. Do you see right. what I'm saying? So right, just with right. two sounds, you actually have the potential to make a whole bunch more if you just simply combine them like that. So then, if you have three sounds and you do the same thing, then suddenly you've got 27 words. And if you've got four sounds, you've got 64. And it's 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 the magic of maths is just about making that initial step, and boom, you're
0: off. And I think too that that there's there's the importance of perception. So if I'm making the uh, uh, and I'm pointing at the at, at a tree, yeah. they're like, "Oh, that's a tree." You know, like uh-huh. it's it's so cool when you go to a foreign country or yeah. excuse me, a, a different country, and you're yeah. trying to communicate. Like, talk about using your executive functioning, right? Using other parts of your brain, and you're yeah. trying to communicate, and you're looking like an idiot, mm. uh, and you're like, you, you know, and, and you're what do you use? You're using hand signals most of right. the time, right? Right. So I wonder what came first, speech or consciousness? Because, again, wow. in order to sort of explain things, it's like we have to know what that thing is. Sure.
1: We do indeed. Well, I, it, as I, I go into that in, in Chapter 4, I believe, of the book. Um, because I, I make a distinction between awareness and consciousness. Right. Okay. okay. Now, You know, there's been this huge debate forever about are animals conscious, you know, Uh, are they they sentient beings or what? In fact, I think in the British Parliament, just in the last year, they have passed a law saying that officially animals are now conscious, (laughs) whereas up to now they weren't. I mean... How humanitarian. well how very convenient actually you know seeing as we eat animals you know it's rather good to think that they probably don't feel anything you know like when you're fishing and the fish is jerking around on the line it's okay it doesn't feel anything you know it's kind of convenient so i think that anybody who's ever had anything to do with animals and you have a dog so you know animals i mean the idea that they don't they're not aware of things is laughable yes they are aware of stuff you know i mean dogs they even understand past and future to a certain extent. You know, they know when it's time to eat something and they're kind of, they want, you know, they, they have a, they can see that they want to go out for a walk, you know, and they have to try and communicate that to you somehow, which they will have their way of doing. And they remember, you know, if you've sort of beaten a dog up for doing something in the past and then you show them that thing again, they'll go, whoa, you know, so they, they clearly have an awareness. But I think what happens with language is that because it allows us to tag the awareness that we have with a noise, then I can say to you, toe, mm-hmm. and you know exactly what I mean, because it's a word that we've agreed on the meaning with. Right. So now we, we can be conscious of a toe, whereas before you knew you had a toe, but you weren't you didn't you maybe didn't know what it was called. So to me, there is a distinction to be made between awareness and consciousness. And consciousness is just about do you have you actually been able to separate it, you know, from just an instinctive awareness? I mean, just think of uh, I don't know, um, architecture. Okay, this is something I think of a weird thing, but when I went to Japan first off, I'd obviously grown up in my own country and you know there are all buildings around all the time, and I'd never looked at them. You know, it was just like that was just what was around me. And I went to Japan and I the first Kind of two or three years I was there, I was thinking, there's something different about this place. And I can't put my finger on it. Mm. Now, one day I realized that there weren't any buildings that hadn't been built previous to the to, during the previous generation's lifetime. In other words, everything had been burnt down in Tokyo. Right. Right. Everything was modern. There were no old buildings. Well, there were a very few, but hardly any. So then I, when I came back to, to, to England, I'm walking the streets of London, I'm going, oh my God. There's old buildings everywhere. How old's that one? And how old's that one? And then gradually you, you start to learn that that's a Tudor building and that's a Georgian building oh, and that's a Victorian yeah. building. And suddenly I'm conscious of it, right? It's not that I wasn't aware of it. I'd seen it. I, I knew the buildings were there. I'd just never been conscious of them before. Yeah.
0: It, so, was all, it was like the forest and trees kind of thing. Now you exactly, see the individual exactly, trees.
1: Exactly. Right. So... Yeah. That's the function of language. I mean, just, again, think about babies. Think about yourself. You don't remember, but, I mean, that's what happens if you watch a little baby, uh, how they grasp it. You know, they're just becoming conscious. You know, they're aware but they're not conscious. Language is what brings consciousness in, is my way of thinking of it anyway.
0: And and you bring up children and i have a, a a young daughter you know 21 months and you nice. i'm starting to see language and it's I'm so, so cool it's 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 amazing right because yeah. a lot of language is conditioning too mm-hmm. right and, and and conditioning are you saying the conditioning or correct me if i'm wrong what i'm hearing is that awareness is based around conditioning right so for example with the dog Mm. You know, if your dog jumps up on the table and does something you're like Mm. "Hey, right. Mm. It's being conditioned. Oh, don't do that. Yes. Whereas, whereas consciousness again, what I'm hearing is it's more abstract. It's this sort of being able to think outside of your frame of reference, kind of like with the, the tutors, tutor architecture was way before our time. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, you know, postmodernism is our time. You know, these kind of ideas is you get a sense that times have happened before, so mm. that things have been built upon other things. Whereas the awareness piece is, it's sort of like as you're going.
1: I think of it more in terms of instinct, if you like. I mean, you you, you okay. sort of awareness is what you awareness is just perception. You know, you you can yeah. see and you do see, and you can feel and you can. All, all your, your senses, the five senses are, you know, all, all animals have those. And some of them have a lot better than us, you know. Some animals can see a lot better, some can smell a lot better, you know, they're, they're actually much more finely tuned in terms of their awareness, their raw awareness, like the ability, like a dog can smell however much it can, like a, a thousand yards away, it can smell something. We can't do that, you know. So there's a, our, our awareness is limited but we may be more conscious of what we can smell because we can describe different parts of it in a way that the dog will just instinctively go, he can smell whatever the thing is that he's after. But he might not be able to describe or even be conscious of what it is. He just knows that's what he wants. Food, going for it, you know? So um, to me, it's, it's about becoming aware that you're aware, you know? That's what. That's that's, what that's consciousness. Yeah, that's consciousness. That's how oh, I'm yeah. defining it. And having the words to think about it is actually a huge part of that process.
0: Well, that's that's kind of the other piece. It's, it's like also,
1: it's also the trap, of course, because you get trapped into the words.
0: <laughs> right. Like, did did our ability to speak things kind of like I say, did that create our consciousness? I mean, you were talking about senses before. At
1: least, Yes. Wow. Yes, yeah. I, believe, I believe that is the case. I believe that is the greatest gift of words is consciousness. Yes. I know that's a bit of. You bad. have
0: to let me digest that for a second. I know. I, think, I know. Oh, well, I think if, you, if you look at my book, if I uh,
1: page one hundred six and one hundred seven of the actual book itself.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, are the most crucial pages in the book. Which I'm is free, gonna,
0: on <laughs> free on Kindle. Free on Kindle, but
1: unfortunately, Kindle won't allow me to deliver the thrill that you will get through the the actual book, because page 106 and 107 have something on them that is just so mind-blowing that that Kendall can't deal with it. (laughs) I can't see what it is, but it is the crux of that biscuit, exactly what you just said. You need a moment to dwell on it, and that is what page 106 and 107 deliver for you. Wow. I'm going to have to leave uh, for the, for the, for the viewers. Yeah.
0: I know. I, I, I love it. I, I, I love cliffhangers, <laughs> you know, the, the thirst for knowledge. And I think too, that there's a, I mean, we're going off on a different tangent in terms of education and awareness understanding yeah. there's yeah. a difference between me telling you something and a person experiencing it and getting it for themselves. Right. I mean, sure. Absolutely. That's the, that's the essence of being a teenager of an adolescence of an adolescent. Now, hmm. The other thing you you mentioned is, yes, dogs have heightened senses. Yes. Is communication, like there's five senses, you know, smell, mm. taste, sound, sight, touch. Mm. Did I miss it? Oh. Yeah, anyways. So yeah. so these are the five sentence, senses. Yeah. Taste, yeah. Adding them all together, does that create communication? I mean, because we know that if, for example, if I lose my vision, my other mm-hmm. senses are amplified, or so, or so that's said. I've never yes. obviously experienced that, but that's what I've heard.
1: You should try where walking does... around the blindfold for a while. Yeah. You, well, that you're hearing. In fact, I just I was talking to somebody just the other day who was saying that. Uh, let me see if I can remember where this was. It was an idea that came up about um, the function of dreaming, that dreaming is to actually stop your, because when you're asleep, your eyes are obviously not receiving information. So in order to keep your brain from prioritizing your other senses, your brain creates a dream world so that you're actually seeing something in your head so that your your mind is still focused on the visual. Because if you stopped any visual input, then your brain was diverting to your other senses, principally your ears, probably. But, you know, because when when blind people walk down the street, they're actually, in many ways, seeing something from the sound. The soundscape actually gives them that.
0: Echolocation, almost. Okay. Yeah, yeah,
1: totally, exactly, yes, yes, yeah. So um, I've lost the thread of where we were on that one, but that was... What, you know, oh, yeah, the, the the idea of communication and that our senses, the five senses are they... Are, Communication, well, they're all channels of communication, or they can be channels of communication, but words allow you to be so much more precise about what you're communicating, you know? Because if you and I stopped using English here, if I started speaking Japanese to you, we'd suddenly have a lot more trouble. We could, you know, if we were just going gestures. (laughs)
0: You see, you know, I, mean, I know what I was saying, but you have no idea at all. What, what were you saying? I'm going to take a guess and what say if I it? if I spoke in Japanese, you wouldn't understand me. Is that what you're saying? That's pretty much what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a really good guess. I'm going to be honest.
1: In fact, say something completely different, and do you want me to try that?
0: <laughs> yeah. well... Now, now you're bringing up a good point because, as in my profession, um, I work with all, all kinds of different cultures, and this is a big part in your book: is is the three gods? There's yeah. culture, religion, and identity. identity. Identity, okay. And we'll get back to that. But yeah. I, as I've worked with many different cultures, and different cultures have different perspectives on things like mental health. Yeah. it's very interesting because there will be a uh, an interpreter. Because translator is for the written word interpreters for spoken word so there will be an interpreter and i'll be explaining you know say the student's struggling with their behaviors and mom's there and mom uh is fluent in korean a learning learning language in english so anyways as i'm explaining to the interpreter he's you know he's listening and then mom's listening and then he'll get it, and then he'll explain it to her. And then mm. you gradually see, as she understands what I'm saying. And mm. it's a very powerful moment because mm. sometimes what I'm saying can be very hard yeah. for yes. parents to digest. Yeah. Yeah. And you see, it's it's just, it's, it's I can't even it's put like, my it's finger like on it.
1: Melting of the understanding, right? There's sort You, of like see, you
0: see it happen. Like I've already yeah. said what I said. But yeah. you see, it's almost yeah. like you're, it's like an out-of-body experience, right? Yeah. Because the me- I've already delivered my message. Now it's yeah. being delivered again. And I see how the message is being received. Yeah. And this, the, maybe it's sadness, maybe it's frustration, but you see as a person begins to understand. Right, right. And I, th- but- I, I, I think that, you know, it, for somebody who hasn't had that experience of working with an interpreter between two cultures... It's hard. It's really hard to define. But when you do that, you start to see just how powerful language is.
1: You see, and now you're now you're becoming conscious of that. So that's a conscious element that you're adding to your own sort of armor, if you like, of being able to deal with the world because you understand that. Because in actual fact, what we're doing when we're talking, just you and I, even though we're using what we would consider our native language, is still a translation, you know. I'm having a I'm I'm feeling something and I'm thinking, how am I gonna say this to Rob? What's the best way of saying this? And for most of our lives we're totally automatic on that, you know. Uh, and some of us have find it more easy to express ourselves than others, you know, and it depends what we're talking about, you know, as well. But it's it's always a process of translation, you know. We don't mm. see it as that, but it actually is a process of translation.
0: Yeah, and and I mean, uh, Socrates said ideas have consequences, right? Hmm. But when I was a a snobby nosed, smart ass kid, I was like, well, yeah, ideas have consequences, but it's the words that have the outcome. Mm. And because, you know, we could just keep our ideas in our own heads. But Uh, until we speak something, you know, that's that's when we can get a reaction. Although I do tell cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, talks about how thoughts and feelings are connected. Right. And and I do think that we all have an internal dialogue, mm-hmm. right? Like like I have an internal. I you know we speak to ourselves. I know that sounds slightly schizophrenic.
1: But, of course, no, we do.
0: Right now, words again, are wise
1: but, men's counters. Do you know that one? Thomas Hobbes. He was an English philosopher from the 17th century. He oh, said, "Oh yes, Leviathan." Words, words are wise. Yeah, words are wise men's counters. They do but reckon with them. But they are—they are—but they are the money of fools. Mm. So it's, it's sort of like—but—but but the point is, you do need words to reckon with in a way. You need to—you need to be able to sort of reckon means calculate. So you have—you know—you are using words in your head to try and sort of work out what you're thinking. Without those words, it would be—it would be hard to do that.
0: I think too that you know, on Hobbes, because I am—I am a fan of Hobbes. I, mm. I mean, like I—I—you I, know, we're all eclectic.s we're all building off of other philosophies. Hmm. But he talked about social contractualism, right? This idea that without the agreements that we've made, without the systems that we put in place, life is nasty, brutish, and short. And I think that speech, I mean, I'm just, I'm, 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 you know, I'm ping ponging it back after what you're telling me. I think speech is the genesis of order in our society. Eight.
1: <laughs> I don't know yet. That's, right. that, that, that's the trajectory of the book because the book starts with chapter one what is language? What's actually yeah. going on here? What are the nuts and bolts of language? Chapter two what is the first consequence of language? And the answer is culture. Not, not in the sort of artsy culture sense, just the culture, the way in which we live. How do we do things? You know, because as soon as we can talk, we have to decide, well, how are we going to do this thing that we want to do? What's the best way of doing it? How are we going to do it? We're going to do it this way. Good. Then, you know, you get into why. <laughs> what the hell? Why, why are we doing it? Why is anything happening? And that that's your, your immediate solution to that it seems to be some kind of religious solution if you go back into history, you know, whether it's an animist thing, it's like, oh, there are gods everywhere. We need to be careful. We need to locate this stuff. And, you know, there's a whole sort of culture around religion. And then that in turn becomes an identity issue. You know, each of it, we, we become, you know, associated with a particular culture and religion that then that's our identity. But as you know, in the, uh, the subtitle of the of chapter four on identity, there's this great quote from this woman called Estee Martin, who apparently is a radio show host in Florida. And the quote is, identity is theft of the self. And I think that is just a really brilliant quote. Because it means to the extent that you identify with something. Oh, you are disidentifying with yourself, you know, you're saying I am that thing, I am, you know, whatever. And obviously there are times where that's very important for a group to have a sense of identity. But on the individual level, if we're talking about maximizing our own personal consciousness, and what it means to be ourselves, then identity is, is the theft of the self, you know, it actually gets in the way. So just sort of carrying on the theme, and I will come back to your order points. So we, so those are the three gods. There's culture, religion, and identity. And all those things in their own way are traps because we get trapped into our own particular the culture that we happen to have been born into tells us this is the right way to do it. And this is how you should be doing it. And, and then suddenly we're all fighting over some kind of... <laughs> that our trap is the best idea. Yeah, exactly that. So then how do you get out of that? Chapter five suggests some of the antidotes that that, that, you know, the kind of things that we're instinctively drawn to that allow us to break through some of those problem, you know, problem the the, the problems that come with culture, religion, and identity. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. They're all extremely important in, in the process of developing consciousness, you know, because culture is how we develop consciousness. But you need to be able to step back from it as well. So, chapter five is the antidotes. In a word, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but let's not go into that too much here. Um, And then, so, well, what what else can we do with language? What is like, how do we find something that is actually, you know, reliable within language? And, And the whole story of science, if you like, about how do we work out who we are, where we are, what's going on what is the process by which we can actually come to some kind of reliable understanding of things so chapter 6 deals with with the sort of how we went from thinking that we were like at the middle of god's creation and that was it and it was just like the stars around us and that was was we surrounded by the angels in heaven and you know every single culture in the world whatever whether it's the aboriginals of america of, of australia or or wherever they it's sort of, we always thought we were the center of the world, and then we gradually found that we weren't. So that whole process is, is you know, the next step up of language is, how, how do we really find out what's going on? And then how do we store all that knowledge? How do we transmit it? What are the ways of doing it? If we're just me and you talking, then, you know, you might remember it, or you'll half remember it, and or I will forget what you said. It's just, and it disappears as soon as we stop talking. But now look at this thing. You know, not only are we like five thousand miles apart, this moment in time is being preserved for posterity through some mechanical means, so that other people can look at it. It's just the most incredible thing. Right. So you've got like from speech to writing to printing to the internet, that whole kind of technical progress of actually allowing us to store and communicate knowledge is just an amazing thing that has is is increasingly. I mean, now, like with a with an iPhone or whatever, you can just, anything I want to know about anything, I can find out, if I know to ask the right question, I can find the answer in like seconds. I mean, just even from when I was a kid, that's just an impossible dream. It's just, you know, amazing. So now, finally, drum roll, chapter eight, what are we doing with this? The, you know, words are about coming up with agreements, that's really what language is about. And what have we signed up to? What have we agreed to do? And, and why aren't we doing it is really the point. So I'm just now looking at the way the world is internationally. And we're, we're sort of like kind of trying to figure out ways of dealing with problems that are now so big that no no one country can deal with it. I mean, we're all on that page now. I mean, climate change, whatever you think about it, who caused it, whatever, it seems to be happening. And we need to try and do something about it but no one country can do that we've got to agree on that we've got to find some way of deciding how we deal with that then economic issues you know international companies that are just dodging around and you know dodging tax and so forth there's only you can only deal with that at at an international level so what's the forum for doing that well there there isn't really one i mean there's a sort of united nations but Whoever heard of the United Nations these days, you know, but actually, the United Nations is an agreement that was made 60, 70 years ago now, and we've all signed up to it, but we're not doing it. So, what's going on here? We actually signed up to it. Do you know, do you know the famous, you know, Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream? Mm-hmm. You must know that one. Yeah, he came in the 60s, he went to Washington and said, I have a dream. Yeah. That, okay, so do you know that before he said those words, there was a little preamble for that speech. And he said, I've come to Washington to cash a check. I hold in my hand a check that was issued to me by the United States government. It's called the Constitution. And it says that all people should be treated equal. This is a legal contract. You have signed off on this and you're not doing it. Why not? Now, I think the the next stage for that is to say, We've signed off on an agreement. It's called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the UN Charter. We have all agreed that we will work to maintain international peace and security. That is the purpose of the United Nations. Yeah. So I hold a check in my hand. It's called those things. I want to know why we're not doing it. We've agreed to do it, you know, and nobody's talking about it. So that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the final stage of the book.
0: <laughs> well and oh man, i mean so many and another big one too is that w- when talking about the future i can't help but think about you know there's star wars there's star trek and star trek does a lot of beautiful things especially with language because yeah. you have all these different cultures with all these different language you know there's klingon there's falcon and stuff but because yeah. they have like a little piece in their ear they're Maybe. able to understand each other through their uh cultural language ethno lens right and i think that that's a brilliant piece because yesterday as i was reading your book uh Mm. i was with the classroom and i was Mm. with these this like advanced class
1: okay and
0: uh and i'm like oh man i'm gonna throw some some speed balls at these guys because i might not get their math but you know i could probably level with them in philosophy And I said, if we could all speak a universal universal language, would Mm. that be the end of conflict? Mm. If we had a universal, like like I knew what you were saying. Mm. Remember back when you were speaking Japanese? I knew that. And I understood that. And I understood Mm. the cultures and the customs. And I trusted it. Would that be the end of conflict? Because nowadays... In conversations, people say things like, if I don't get a pronoun right, people, I'm just using this as an example, Yeah, yeah. people are offended, right? Sure. And it's like, okay, but my goal isn't to offend you. My goal is to understand you. Correct. And I think that therein kind of lies the problem is that we're appealing to our emotions, but we're not necessarily... Understanding what it is that we're after, because let's face it, there's wolves out there in the world that will mm. tear us apart, regardless mm. of what God we bow to, right? Yeah. But when I'm asking questions about
1: language we speak,
0: yeah, like when we're trying to understand each other, mm. can we get to a point where we won't just cancel each other, but we can have real conversations, and and I do believe real progress. Like, is mm. that what's limiting us? Is is our appeal to our emotions?
1: Mm. Well, I mean, I think we're never going to get rid of conflict because that—that's that—that you know, that is part of the human condition. It's part of the the animal condition. It's part of you know we all competing for limited resources. Be that time, be it food, be it whatever. We we are doing that. But then, whether we speak one language or, or many languages, the the issue is how do we deal with conflict? You know, and mm-hmm. The, for me, the big issue is about how do, we, how do we stop war? Because essentially, we can't have war anymore. I mean, the wars that exist around the world, they're, they're kind of like asymmetric police operations, if I call yeah. it that, I can call it that. You know, when, when America goes into Afghanistan, right, America's the, the biggest military force on the planet. So, but it's not actually using its military force. They haven't nuked Afghanistan which you know if in any war up until the second world war the end of the second world war any time there was a serious war it was between two groups of people they were doing everything every no rules it's like whatever you got you throw it at the other side now we can't do that we actually cannot do that there is no way that china russia and america can have a nuclear war they're not going to do it it's never going to happen because we know that's suicide. So what are we do? Yeah, exactly. So what are we going to do? You know we're having these kind of little chicken shit local wars around the place, and we just sit there and watch Syria go down and you think, seriously, what, what are we doing? Here? Why is there no mechanism? Because if you if it was within one country, you know if, if Texas kicked off, let's say, to use Texas as a random example, um, there would be a mechanism within the United States to deal with that. You know, the, the National Guard would be down there or whatever it was, there would be somebody coming in to stop that. And whatever issue there was that was causing it, there'd be a forum for that to be discussed. Now, there's nothing on the world stage. Well, that, there actually there is, but it's not allowed. And that's the Security Council, where any issue that's happening on the world stage should be and could be discussed and we could have a decision like what are we going to do about this and whose rights are involved here but there's a thing called a veto where you know Russia China America Britain or France can go veto and uh, if you don't like it it doesn't happen so it just carries on and that, that's ridiculous you know that that is sort of the problem that stops conflict being resolved because if we did it like we do in our own democratic Democratic, in inverted commas, but you know, in countries where we have the rule of law, and if I, if you and I have a bust-up, right? If you and I decide that you built, if I say you built your fence on my land, okay, <laughs> get your fence off my land, and you go, no, it's my land, and I say, well, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come and smash your face in, you know, or, or whatever, you know. Yeah. So we we might have an argument about it, but then ultimately the, we can get the police involved. The police would stop it. And then you and I can go to a public space and decide we can make our case and there'll be a judge and a jury and whatever, and they will decide that I'm right or he's right whatever. That's it. That's the end of it. We should be able to do that at the next level up. You know, we've agreed to do it. Why aren't we? Is the question.
0: It's because, I I mean, it's almost like these gods are fighting, like gods are fighting.
1: But they're not gods. They're just no, sort of... no,
0: I know. I yeah, but <laughs> but it's like it's like with uh, you know using China as the example or, or whatever. It's it's okay. Well, you guys have to do this, and it's like, well, sure, yeah, we'll do it. But then they don't do it. It's like, I well,
1: mean, it's, worse it's worse than that. It's like you you have the Security Council is like fifteen countries that sit around. So let's take for example um, what happened recently. Yeah, I mean controversial topic, but in Israel, there was recently this thing kicked off, right? And then as usual, you know, the Palestinians are firing rockets into, into Israel, and Israel, you know, retaliates. Right. And so there was a Security Council meeting about that. And 14 countries said, we should, Israel should be required to stop doing this. And one country said, no, they shouldn't. That was the United States. They they said, No, we shouldn't interfere here. The United States used its veto. So that means at that point, we can't discuss this anymore. Because a veto has been exercised. And the same thing happens with Syria and Russia exercises a veto and says, We can't talk about it. It's like, what do you mean we can't talk about it? <laughs> what else are we going to do?
0: Right, yeah, yeah. Start by talking this is happening.
1: Yeah. This is happening. But because of the The mechanism in the United Nations at the moment—it cannot actually do what it's supposed to do, which is absurd. Anyway, I I talk about that in chapter eight because it really, it really uh, ticks me off, as we say. (laughs) And there is actually a mechanism to get around it, but you'd have to read the book to find out. Otherwise, I I
0: love it. I love it. You are a salesperson. Um, Yeah, I just—I do find that. Oh no, no, no. Well, I mean, like with jerry fialka he who i i see myself as a, a disciple of his or you know okay. i'm in training he, I he, he,
1: that's 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 a very jerry trait jerry writes things down
0: oh yeah well you know it's funny how i i i met him through uh, roger steffens who's bob marley's one of his chief historians oh, really? and uh, and roger's like you gotta meet this jerry guy i'm like sure <laughs> yeah and then i look him up very abstract eccentric character then right. I met this guy. I'm like, man, I love this guy. Then I realized, right. I'm like, ah, maybe we do have a lot in common or something. But he talked a lot about he, – he's a huge follower of Marshall McLuhan. Okay. Yeah, yeah, McCoolin,
1: and, yeah, And
0: he talked about the medium is the message. Right. So what does that mean for speech? Because speech is the medium. What is the message?
1: Well, I don't necessarily sign up to the medium as the message. right. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Yoko Ono once and she said, you know, we went to see Marshall McLuhan and I said to him, no, the message is the message. (laughs) And, and I, and I know, I know what it means in the sense that the medium is the message is that the medium is affected. Sorry. The message is affected by the medium, depending on, on, you know, whatever form that message is being transmitted through that will to a certain extent affect the, the message. But, but ultimately, the message is the message, you know? And, and in terms of language and translation and interpreting and all that, I mean, right. when you are inter- using an interpreter to, to speak to your, your Korean lady, you know, she is, you have a message, right? Yeah. Now, right. You, you use your medium, which is English, which doesn't work for her because she doesn't understand that medium. And then you explain it to an interpreter and he uses her medium to explain it to her. But the end of that process is for the message to be conveyed. So although Marshall McLuhan was obviously trying to draw attention to the effect that media were having on the consciousness of the people receiving messages through the media, particularly he was talking about television and, and you know, sort of yes. electronic media, nonetheless, the message is the message. Yes. You know, the, yes. it's, it's what is your message is the important thing really yeah.
0: why well, and I think too like how has technology and in particular let's just talk about cell phones, you know internet usage, yeah. how has that affected communication? Speed it up <laughs> incredibly mm. but has I'm, it has it improved communication? or has it like what, uh, what I mean what are your thoughts on that?
1: I don't know. I mean, part of me because I grew up with books and I still, you know, like to read books and me as well. It sort of distresses me a little bit that that my children don't read really in quite the way that that you know that it's they don't seem to have time to immerse themselves in a in a book and really kind of Follow a, a long, complicated train of thought that, that is taking you in a, in a particular way, and, and that you can stop along the way and think about. And and that's, um, I don't know to I, I, I'm not qualified to really say to what extent that that is a you know, um, an objective change that has occurred. But on the other hand, the upside of that, as I was saying earlier, is I mean, I can. Anything that I'm thinking about or I'm having a conversation with yeah. somebody, you know, I can think, now, what was that? And I can just look it up, boom, and I can find out immediately. That's incredible to me. I mean, right above my head up there, where am I going? Up there, there's a set of encyclopedias there, right? Oh, yes, yeah, same, yeah, yeah. Encyclopedia Britannica. So... When I came back from Japan, I always wanted an encyclopedia as a kid, and my parents would never buy one because they're too expensive, and who wants an encyclopedia, right? So when I came back from Japan at the age of about 32, first thing I did when I made some money was to buy an encyclopedia because that was the only thing you had back then. If you wanted to know, if you wanted to have a, a, a reference, a basic reference library, an encyclopedia was as good as it gets, you know? you just. Grab it down from the shelf, and any subject you need to know about—that's how you did it. Now, you know this thing. Wikipedia. Yeah. Whoa! It's 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 in the palm of my hand. It's just amazing. Yeah. Now it's interesting. You you know H.G. Wells, the writer H.G. Wells, you know the science fiction guy, yeah. War of the Worlds, you know Time Machine. He in 1940 thereabouts he wrote a book called The World Brain, and he decide he he re- he was thinking forward and he was saying, the next step in this process is to have some means where all the knowledge in the world can be connected up together so that anybody who wants to know anything can sit down at his own desk and get like a projection of whatever it is that he needs to know about right there. This is before computers, any of that. He could, he could see that that was the next step but he didn't know how it was gonna be done. But conceptually, he understood that's what was gonna happen. now. In the lifetime of his grandchildren, that is the reality. You know, it's just amazing yeah. how much that's happened.
0: And and really, just in in the span of like, you know, the first iPhone yeah. came out what two thousand seven, and look where we are now. Like, wow, no, are no. you and I communicating it right I mean, there like I that.
1: I haven't looked I at don't. that media for twenty five years, <laughs> but it looks great. It looks great, but I mean, I don't <laughs> need. <think laughs> <that's laughs> no, it's 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 as
0: obsolete as you know yeah, uh, really? clay tablets you know what wow. it's yeah. amazing i mean even perhaps more obsolete because clay tablets they you know they they hold history i mean those right. do but they're not like ancient you know great yeah so wow yeah they truly have i mean so again speech has been this ability it's this um you know, I, I can't think of the word mitochondria or whatever. It's the vessel that's allowed us to pass down or yeah. pass up information. Correct. Yes. Throughout the ages. Yes. So what What books, because I'm looking at uh, the seismic hazard behind you, um, <laughs> but I, I love it. I love it. I love bookshelves.
1: It's, it's double bubble, as we call it in the trade. That's actually too, too deep, those books. It's not just oh, one wow. shelf. wow. You pull out a bunch of books. There's another depth behind them. So, like the the ones I'm looking at most are in the front, and then there's the, the ones behind them too. So it's... that's impressive. <laughs> but
0: I I have my <laughs> I have bookshelf, bookshelf as well. I you know see. what? That's that's my favorite thing in the Zoom calls is whenever like I hope everybody has a bookshelf in their Zoom call. Hmm. And when I'm looking at them, I'm like, hmm. You know, like I'm not gonna lie. I'm sizing them up based on their books. I see <laughs> one. Uh, right beside your left shoulder and i'm pretty sure it says freedom uh, this one that's right yeah 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 just yeah. just yeah. down a little lower yeah that's a, that's, now, a rubbish, that's a rubbish book oh okay yeah yeah well you know if you can anybody yeah. who can summarize freedom it was,
1: by, it was written by some it's a it's a it's a right-wing rant i just got uh, it because i wanted to understand these guys
0: yes <laughs> so well i i've i've had conversations with the 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 right-wing as well and it's always interesting to to listen to them. Like again, not be emotionally evoked,
1: but you right? need to understand. you need to understand where everybody's coming from. You know, it's uh, everybody's got their little portion of the truth. You know, but uh, it's the question of how you deal with that.
0: So, what books have have inspired you in in your journey? I mean, your top top three books because you mentioned Sapiens, Ooh. and then you're talking about. Um, Um, Okay Um,
1: One really influential book Is called Guns, Germs and Steel Jared Diamond Jared Diamond Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean that's that's, In my own particular journey That's quite a latecomer Because that's like 1995 or something So I'm already in my 40s at that point So uh, There's a really great book Which um, is called In Pursuit of the Millennium and it's by a British historian called Norman Cone. It was written in the 60s. And it's about millennial cults. And it starts out with, because you remember, you're old enough to remember the 2000, you know, the Passover over the year 2000. Yeah, when yeah. the Y2K early. bug. That's the one, you know, the world's going to end, all the computers are going to crash and all this stuff. Well, it turns out that there was a similar thing around the year 1000, right? Yeah. The, end, the end of the 10th century, just as it like, was going to go from 999 to 1000. It's like, what's going to happen? This is the end of the world. And there, were, there, was, there was a whole bunch of stuff around that. So he the, the book is a study of mostly religious groups through history who have believed that this is the end of the world is about to come and we need to purify ourselves and prepare for you know, God's second coming and part of that means that we should all live like communal lives and help each other and peace, love and eternal wisdom, you know, that kind of stuff. And it always is the same. And it always ends badly with one guy with the biggest dick having all the women and everybody else living in misery. You know, yeah, Do you yeah. remember the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh guy, you know, the, the orange guy, he was in Kalab. No, maybe before your time. But anyway, there was a guru from the... The 60s, 70s, 80s period, who went to California and caused mayhem. Exactly the same thing. But yeah. it's um, that's a great book. It's a, it's a great book because it shows that everybody is trying to, every, not everybody, but many people sort of are looking for the perfect ideal world, and it, it, it tends to end badly because we're not organizing ourselves properly. But So that, anyway, that, that, that was a great book. It sticks in my head. Jeez, you're putting me on the spot here. I haven't really uh, thought about this, but... Um, hmm. What? <laughs> the, just sort of, uh, I like, or I used to like, the ones that inspired me. I mean, something like the history of Western philosophy by Bertrand Russell. Mm-hmm. Just something that gives you a big picture. I like, you know, I like to want to I, I want to know the big picture first and then you can pick and choose in the little bits in between, so you know, that kind of thing. The Guns, Jones <laughs> and Steel was a classic big picture
0: book. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Why?
1: No, Why whoa, whoa, it... I was
0: going to say Sapiens was a really good one. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and
0: when you're speaking about the 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 millennium, the dawn of the millennium, I mean, it just goes to so, show that people are easily influenced, mm-hmm. right? All throughout the span of history, people have yeah. been easily influenced. Yeah. And what do you influence people with? language the false, the false gods of culture religion and identity is right so how do we get away from these false gods
1: um well um you have i think you have to find yourself that, that, that's i mean that that sounds a that's that's a very easy thing to say and a very difficult thing to do but it, it's one of the great things for me of going and living spending a lot of time in another culture was that it made me rethink everything I had ever thought about who I thought I was, you know. And your own I, culture, yeah. Yes, because and especially if you if you marry into that culture and then you know, everything, the most intimate things in your day to day life, you're gonna come up against different assumptions. It's like, why do you do it that way? Why do you do it that way? I I don't know, is doesn't everybody do it that way? No, they don't do it every that way. Everybody here does it that way. And it's like so you, you have to kind of ask a question to every little, you know, moment of your life almost. Why are we doing it that way? Why am I doing it that way? I mean, just something as very simple as, should you wear shoes in the house or not, you know? It turns out that Anglo-Saxon culture is about one of the the only cultures in the world where we just assume that, of course, you walk straight into the house with the shoes that you just tried dog shit in the street on and walk through (laughs) the house. And that's, that's absolutely fine. Most cultures around the world, including most European cultures, take their shoes off in the house because for that very reason. You don't want to tread crap into the house. So, now that's, that's, if you've never thought about it, it's like, oh, why am I, why, oh, you know. And it's, so it's, it's about really sorting out what is me and what is just automatic. You know, because basically once you if you grow up in a culture, you're you're learning an automatic set of processes. And that's you until you realize that it isn't you, it's actually just your culture. <laughs> so for me, that has been the, the biggest learning moment, I think, in my in my life is, is my exposure to other mm-hmm. cultures. I don't think you necessarily need to have to do that, but it's all it, it's all about just Questioning things uh, and finding, you know, it's like, why do I do that? I know I do that. Do I like doing that? I don't. I just do that. You know, it's it's that sort of thing. You, you, you have to kind of try and constantly step back, which is why we go back to that little saying: identity is theft of the self. It kind of is.
0: You know what? One thing that I've learned in my own life is that the fountain of youth is cognitive dissonance. Hey. (laughs) Right. Like when when you you're doing something and then somebody's like, you do it that way? And you're like, yeah. "Yeah." But then they're like, well, you could do it this way. Whoa, that is great. Like, work smarter, not harder is another expression. And and I do agree that if you there's a there's a stat that I heard, I don't know the exact number, but I think less than more than half of U.S. citizens, and I don't mean to pick on the United States, but yes. it's just the example that I heard: more yeah. than half of the United States apparently don't have passports.
1: Yeah, I've, I've read something like that. Yes, and
0: I thought, like, wow, that's. Uh, but then, of course, here's the cognitive dissonance piece: how much of the world have I really seen? You know, I've been to lots of places in the United States, but I haven't been to anywhere in Europe, or eight. Uh, I've been to Hong Kong, but but you you see what I'm saying? Is mm-hmm. yes but when you when you experience a different culture, that's when you I think you actually understand yourself. Yeah. Uh, here in the West, you know I, I have a, I am of Anglo-Saxon background, whatever you'd like to call it, yeah. And I'm what's considered the dominant culture. But I don't really know my culture. And it wasn't until I went to Barbados, which is a very uh, different culture than my own, where I was the minority. That I really started to understand my own identity, just Absolutely. as you
1: say, yeah. and I
0: think that that is a wonderful exercise. It's an exhausting exercise, well, but it also a- it also puts into perspective how you interact with with other cultures within your own.
1: Yeah, I, I, and, and cognitive dissonance is actually a really good point on that. I think because that's that's what happens when you your whole set of assumptions are challenged. And then it's like, wait a minute! That, 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 now, now that is—it's—it's it's both a challenge and an opportunity. And and how you deal with that will depend, I, you know, on how whether you whether you grow or whether you don't to a certain extent. You know, are you are you going to take on the challenge or are you just going to refuse it? Now, you know, um, when I when I first went to Japan, not first, but continually through my experience living in japan i mean i'm i'm white of anglo-saxon background for want of a better term and all that i've also i'm a man and i i was lucky enough to have a decent education so i've sort of cruised through life in in sort of white anglo-saxon world without any sense that i was in any way inferior to anybody else it's like you know i'm, I'm good you know i'm 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 sort of you know I'm rolling with it. I'm, you know, we're all good. Yeah, we're all good and you know, suddenly you find yourself in a culture which has an equally sophisticated knowledge base and understanding of itself and considers that white people are actually clumsy, barbarian, uninformed, unsophisticated and in many ways just narrow-minded about all kinds of things. And I experienced, as particularly as I, my Japanese improved to the point where I could have decent conversations with people. I began to notice that I was being kind of almost pitied. I think is the word rather than looked down on. I mean, it's nothing <laughs> like it's nothing like being an ethnic minority in, in 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 the white world, which is you know kind of pretty demeaning. I think the way white people treat the most sort of non-white minorities ethnic minorities it wasn't anything like as bad as that but it's, nonetheless it's, it's
0: kind of patronizing
1: yes it is is patronising in, in the west in the west but I, was, but I was being patronized in a way in in japan because i didn't know enough about japanese culture i didn't speak the language properly enough properly enough is that the right way to say it you know <laughs> so it was like oh you're never going to understand us because you know there's certain things that only japanese people can understand and all that it was sort of you know and it was a really, really educational experience. And I'm really glad I had that experience. It really made me understand what it's like to be looked down on, actually, yeah. you know? In a small way. I'm not saying that it was particularly, it's, it's not like, you know, being being black in an in inner city, you know, experience in, in, in America or, or here in, in in the UK, you know? Nothing like as bad as that, but it gives you a sense of what that means, not to be in the top rank of the people who just assume that the world is theirs, you know, and and that's all this stuff I don't know about in the states, but here right now is this sort of thing about, uh, you know, um, white privilege and you know, yes. um, and, and, and you know, even racism itself. It's like people go, "I'm not racist," you know, and it's like, no, you 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 aren't consciously racist, but you are actually. Your behaviour is unconsciously racist because you're making all these assumptions about the way white culture is and what's best and you're not taking into account any of the other things you don't understand and you're not putting yourself in the position of the other people so in effect you are racist i'm I'm sorry to say it but actually you are unconsciously racist
0: well if you're Um, offended if you're offended by the fact that someone's saying that you have privileges then you, you know what i mean like it shouldn't that's not the point is like, People don't what see do you it. mean I am yeah, exactly?
1: People don't, it, yeah. well, they don't even see yeah. it. it. It's just, not they're oblivious. There. They're, they're, they're oblivious, oblivious to it. Oblivious We're yeah. back to awareness and consciousness, if you like. You
0: know, no, <laughs> Pulse, really. See, I said it'd be back and forth. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting how um, guilo is an expression in, in Mandarin, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it's, it's, uh, it's sort of um a derogatory term for a Westerner, yeah. and it translates loosely as "listen," and I find that so fascinating. At least mm-hmm. when I looked it up when i when I looked it up, Guaylo. It so I could be wrong. Don't you know? Okay. Don't take my word for. It. I'm not the authority. I, 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 my Mandarin isn't good enough to be able to correct you. But I find that, like, that's what they're saying is listen, and I okay. think that in our culture, we, at least for myself, there's this idea of. You know, we have to get it all. We have to understand it. And if we would just listen, we might actually progress a little bit further, you know. But we I would benefit it, ourselves.
1: Yeah, but it's it's almost sort of going back to the, you know, the, almost the self-indoctrination of, of your own culture and the problem, the trap of culture. is that There's a fascinating example, I mentioned it in the book, which uh, in, in the jungles of South America, there's this small tribe called the Piraha, I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but it's something like that. Anyway, apparently in their language, the word that they use for themselves means straight head, right? Hmm. And the word that they use for foreigners means crooked head. So in other words, we're the ones that are thinking right here. And all the others, they got it wrong. You know, they're a crooked head, you know. Right, and that right. perfectly encapsulates the problem. Every single culture on the world thinks, thinks it's they story. got it. Just like every person in the world thinks that they, they're right and everybody else is dumb, right? You know, if you don't agree with me, ah, something wrong with you, I'm afraid, you know? Yeah. Unless you make an effort to step out of your comfort zone and, and, and try thinking about it. Because cognitive dissonance is really what drives progress, you know? I mean, that's what
0: drives science. Counterculture. Well, I was As- going to say, counter- <laughs> counterculture is what progresses culture.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Because i are challenging in, it. Just in, in I mean, in, in science, it's like, how do we know that the that the Earth goes around the Sun, not the Sun goes around the Earth? How do how do we figure that one out? Well, we figured it out because we were looking at the way the planets were moving around, and it's like that doesn't make any sense. Instead sort of how do we how do we explain that? It's they they came up with this incredibly complicated set of you know interlocking right. spheres, like 70 different orbitals things, and it was like. And then somebody said, hang on a sec, guys. If we just assume, <laughs> just for the purposes of and a thought experiment. For argument's sake. Yeah. Let's just say the sun was at the center and the earth went round it. And then it, suddenly it would be really simple. How about that? It's like, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Crucify him. Yeah, yeah. Crucify him. And it, and it took you know a very long time to be able to actually prove it. But as a thought experiment, it, it, it worked. And so... Cognitive dissonance is is what drives science,
0: and I think that that's a problem with authority. Is that if it gets it wrong, then it yeah. kind of questions its integrity. Absolutely, totally. You know, I mean, be, they, they, no, that's they exactly. Looked, they laughed at Newton's laws. Hmm. You know, his theory of gravity, which is now a law, right? Hmm. So, in your your journey as as An interpreter, a translator. I mean, you've worked with Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, you know, your experiences with that. Uh, I'm like, that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, that that was really strange because um, just particularly in the case of Paul McCartney, I was not in that world at all, really. Uh, I had just been working... When I came back to the UK from Japan and I I was qualified as an interpreter and I could do all these things and I registered everywhere I could to try and just take any job that came along. And um, because I had been working for the advertising company that was putting together his tour in Japan and also the TV company that was sponsoring it, these two companies came to me when his manager had apparently gone to Japan and said, listen, I don't like the interpreters that you're providing because they, they were providing them with Japanese interpreters. And they did, they did he just thought they weren't telling him the whole story. I don't know. I wasn't there. What can I say? But anyway, he basically said to them, listen, you find me a British interpreter who can do this or I'm not coming back. So they went, shit, what do we do now? <laughs> what do we know? And they just, they both... Talk to each other and, and i was the guy who was on on the list because i'd just been around the block <laughs> right so they right. came to me and and asked me to do it and uh,
0: and so i thought oh, okay why not <laughs> i mean so, I, I, hmm. I was gonna say there it is again it's it's like oh i need a british interpreter right i need somebody who understands the culture <laughs>
1: exactly exactly right. i mean it worked my to my favor in, in, in that respect but um so um, suddenly, I mean, I, I remember that very clearly I'd been on a shoot, because I used to to work in television quite a bit, and I'd just been doing a really intense three-week shoot. And I came home on a Friday evening and there was a, a, a message on the answer phone. Remember answer phones back in the day? <laughs> and uh, I thought, I'll listen to that in the morning. And I listened to it and it was uh, one of those companies saying, we have, a, we have a job in Tokyo on Monday. Can you do it? Can you go to Tokyo? And I was thinking, no way whatsoever. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm exhausted, deadbeat after three weeks on the road. I'm not going to Tokyo on Monday. And then later in the afternoon, my phone rang and it was the other company saying, we've got a job in, in Tokyo on Monday and it's it's, it's really important. Do you think, could you possibly go to? And I thought, oh, this is, yeah. what, what is this? And then they said, oh, well, it's actually Paul McCartney's, uh, manager who needs to go and sort of sign people and, and I thought, Paul McCartney's manager. Hmm, okay. All right, then. <laughs> so I, I did go, and it was um, quite an insight, you know, to be behind the scenes in a, an operation like that, because, I mean, I grew up listening to Paul McCartney like everybody from my generation, and you think... Um, it just seems so distant to anything that I would ever have any possible connection to. And suddenly I'm standing backstage right behind Paul McCartney while he's playing, you know, the, the Golden Slumbers medley from Abbey Road. He's literally right there. And I'm oh. right here and I'm thinking, how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and and then it's like, okay, we're off now. Simon, come on, go with Paul, take him to the bus and we're getting, and then, then we're on the band bus after it. And it's like, Whoa! what am I, why am I on the band bus? Oh, well, you're the only person who speaks Japanese so we might need to talk to the driver or something and say, okay, whatever. And so that was how it started. And then they liked me. I liked them and just sort of one thing led to another. And then I just, I ended up doing that. I think the, the, the best thing I did for him just on a technical basis was it, um, one day his uh, his um, road manager said look paul wants to have simultaneous interpretation texted so in other words when he when he speaks english he wants it to come out in japanese right there and then so people can really understand what he's saying because even though to a certain extent people will get what he says because he's not really saying too many difficult things you know he usually just is quite simple introductions. but he just had to have that okay so can you just fix that for us you know You've got a couple of weeks. You know, so, and it's like, okay, you do realize that's never been done before. It's like, what do you mean it's never been done before? No, well, it's never been done before. You can't, Japanese is very complicated. You can't just type it like that. It takes, you know, it takes a lot of time to type Japanese. You can't type in real time in Japanese like you can in English. Right. Oh, well, yeah, well, why not? You know, it's like, well, okay, I'm going long enough to explain why not. We just we just can't, okay. So well, it doesn't matter about that, you've got to do it, all right? Because he's expecting that. So um <laughs> so, anyway, in two weeks I did manage to make a system work and it involved six people typing simultaneously on top of each other, and a simultaneous interpreter who would so we they would hear him speaking that she would interpret immediately simultaneously into Japanese. I could have done it, but I was supervising, so I couldn't really do that. And then six people would be typing simultaneously to make it come out as a text about three seconds later, because, you know, with the best will in the world, you've got to have a little bit of time. So that was like, oh, my God, we made made it happen. But then the very first night, he comes on stage and he goes, OK, guys, we got a new system. I'm going to test it. I'm going to see how good they are. OK, let's just try this out. So the dog slipped on the banana, is what he said, right? Now, that is such an English-English joke, you know, but the idea of anything slipping on a banana is, like, I don't even know if Americans know that particular thing, but it's like oh, the yeah. banana joke is a very Western concept. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't exist in Japanese, that, that image. So, number one, that's a cultural problem. Number two, the poor interpreter, who was really, really nervous, didn't mm-hmm. hear... The dog slept on the banana. What she heard was the dog slept on the banana. And that is what came out on the screen in Japanese the dog slept on the banana. And the audience went, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you could just hear 50,000 people simultaneously going, huh? It's like, it's like wait a second is that a joke? Should we laugh here? Or, wait a minute, what if it isn't a joke and we laugh and then it'll be really embarrassing for everybody, so let not do anything. <laughs> it's like complete silence, and McCartney goes, hey guys, what's the matter with
0: you? It's like, <laughs> uh, <I'm up. laughs> oh, whatever. Well, we what you said, boss. <laughs> wow. So,
1: stuff like that. It was fun teaching Paul McCartney Japanese, actually, because in fact, he says, he doesn't really say, very I don't know if you've ever seen him play live, but he, he doesn't really say very much. He'll just say a few things to introduce a song. So I said, look, you know, why don't you learn to say, you know, we'll, we'll work together and I'll teach you how to say these little things in Japanese. So by the end of, well, how many times? I've been with him six times to Japan now. He can, he can do his show in Japanese now. Because um, I taught him how to say things, how to remember things and how to, you know, the
0: etiquette
1: and the yeah. well, yeah, it's more to do with it's getting remembering the you know writing the Japanese in a way that sounds like it's English that you can remember and it's like <laughs> um, well, there's a, there's a phrase. Do you want to hear some more? He likes to hear. You want to hear some more, right? So motto kikitai is the, is the, it's a, so motto is like a like a motto, right? That you would write under a like sort of you know. Identity is the theft of the self. How about that as a motto, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> so a motto, and then kiki He said, "Oh, that sounds like kinky tie, like a kinky tie." So we, so he writes down kinky tie, and then we just oh, you, were, you were
0: Anglicanizing it for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah.
1: then it's motto kiki and he just he's got a great ear. I mean, really. He's uh, he's his ear is fantastic. In fact. He told me this story. God, you have to stop me if I'm going on here, but this is such a good story. I no, think it's Please, a good story. please go on. Please go on. Then, um, I complimented him once on his ear. I said, you you know, you, you pick it up really fast. I'm, I know this is going to sound like I'm, you know, arse-licking, but I'm not. Seriously, I do this a lot, and you've got a great ear. I just want to say that. You, you're fast. And he goes, oh, well, it's maybe because of me and John. You know, we did, didn't have a table back in the days. <laughs> No, he actually told me the story. He said, you know, when we were writing songs, we we're in the porch of my mother's house and we couldn't write music. We didn't have a tape recorder. How do you remember the melody that you just come up with? It's almost like, you know, writing and speech, you know. it's like So you come up with this great melody, but how do you record it? You, you can't. Yeah. He said we had, to, we had to just repeat it over and over and over in our heads until we got it, and we got really good at remembering melodies. So I guess I got a good ear. <laughs> so it's like, it's wow, <laughs> that was a connection through history. Suddenly I'm sitting in Paul McCartney's mother's porch with him and John, you know, kind of just sort of, whoa,
0: interesting. Wow. I mean, that is, a, that, so, and have you met John Lennon?
1: No, 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 no. I, I, I've worked with Yoko a lot, but no, right. no. He died before, well, didn't die. He was killed yes. before my time, as it were. But, um, no, I mean, there, there's, yeah. The next book I want to write after this one is called Talking Funny for Money. Talking Funny for Money. <laughs> I wish I could claim ownership of that phrase, but it was actually... I think it was his guitarist who came up to me the second time I worked for him. And we I just arrived in Tokyo and he saw me and he came over and he said, hey, Simon, you still talking funny for money? And I thought,
0: oh, my God, that is the yeah. gift. What a title is that? So, you know. <laughs> now, will that be like a memoir sort of thing? Kind of.
1: Just sort of, you know, funny stories like the one I just told you, but all kind of tied in with the general overall themes of what we have been talking about but you know maybe maybe less intensively so i don't know
0: i've got a lot of material but I do why like like i was saying to you the your book it's a profound message but it's it's written in in a very understandable prose Um, it's you know because some of these books on language and syntax yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, linguistic books can just be like they're not fun, you know That's like they're textbooks you you, you yeah. use them as a weapon and clue yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, but this too. is a very accessible book, so yeah. I do encourage everyone to read it. uh it's available on Amazon, yeah, yeah and uh so what what's what's now you, you
1: published was it was written for my children, not specifically for my children but for my children's generation, which is like you know late twenties early 30s, I want it to be read by people who maybe would never read a book about language, but who, you know, I want it to be accessible in the way that you've just said. So I mean I really, like I said, it took me 30 years to write this book. And a lot of certainly the last five years was about trying to make it more more accessible and just sort of understandable and, you know, no roadblocks in the way of terms that people don't understand and, and all that. It's just sort of try to Try to make it as as intuitively understandable as I as I as I could, and you know, I still you got achieve re-
0: that. Well, thank you. Yeah, it, it, *Sapiens*. The reason why I love that book is it it blends humor and fact. It's just it, philosophy, mm-hmm. and it just makes it in a way that it's very yeah. approachable, digestible, yeah. and that's yeah. that's certainly what you've achieved uh, in your mm-hmm. book. In in the two, the one the intro and the first chapter that I've read just because right. I'm, uh, I'm not a technocrat. I'm still figuring that out. So I couldn't figure out the Kindle thing, but get I'm copy. also, I, yes. Yeah, no, I'm going to get the hard copy. Yeah. So last, last question for you, two questions. What yeah. was your aha moment uh, in your life? Or did you have an aha moment? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. We'll what's what's the first one that comes to mind? Oh my God.
1: Ah, well, in my very, very first aha moment that I can remember, I was still crawling and not walking. And I was in the bottom of the garden where I was born and grew grew up my first five years. And there was a um, a kind of a bank. And I I crawled up to the edge of the bank and there was a hedge. And I poked my head through the hedge. And there's this huge, great, what turned out to be a playing field. It was just a huge, great expanse of openness. And I remember thinking, whoa, there's a big world out there. Oh, my God. And I must have been, I don't know, maybe I was two, three, something like that. And I, and I don't know why I remember that, but I do. It was just a huge, oh, my God, moment. So it's like, there's a big world out there. That probably wasn't what you were expecting,
0: but. Well, <laughs> that is- Actually, that, that does tie into your life. I mean, kind of didn't stay it? in one place. You went and you explored that mm-hmm. vast expanse, right? I mean, as much as I could. Yeah. Are you are, are you done traveling, uh, or or is there still more work to be done? Uh, mm,
1: I mean, I still like traveling, but I mean, there's nowhere that, that's. I, I'd go into space if the opportunity presented itself. <laughs> 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 Probably not at my age, but um um. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm done to the. I, I'm more at the moment interested in making sense of my life, doing the edit. I've got enough raw material, kind of. And and wherever you go, it's always raw material. It's great. I like traveling. You know, locally, anywhere I go, there's there's always something. Under the tiniest stone, there's always something. You know, but um, there comes a point where you you need to kind of make sense of it, and that's what this book is about, really. For me, it's just like, it's the it's the edit. You know. <laughs> awesome
0: i'm I'm still very much collecting samples in my own life but uh, well,
1: that's you know it's the age thing he, one has to you know you gotta have enough how, how, that's how, how old are your kids uh the youngest one is coming up 28 and the oldest one just turned 32 and I have a daughter who's in Japan and she is
0: 38 now yeah so there you go wow did they? Did they become translators or?
1: Uh... nope, sadly, um, but that's okay. I mean, I'm. I, I don't believe in family businesses, particularly. I think you know, you should follow what you. I mean, we. My my daughter is from a, a, my first marriage, and she grew up bilingually. She with her mother went to Australia and went into the school system in Australia. So she, although she's born in Japan, speaks Japanese as a native language. She speaks English pretty much, close to native as well, but she doesn't do anything with it. That's fine, you know. I, I mean, I think once once, once your children are old enough to look after themselves, then you just stand back and observe, really. Unless they have a problem, they can come to you. And basically, whatever she does, that's fine. And the same with my other two kids, really. I mean, we kind of, they grew up in in the UK and the mother's Japanese. We spoke Japanese at home. Sorry. Her, I, her I, mother and I, right. my phone has gone off for some reason. What's that? Okay, um, sorry. But so, her mother, their mother and I tend to speak Japanese at home, but once they were both of school age, they just decided they weren't interested in that. And uh, we just kind of let them, I, I, again, we both decided it's more important for them to be themselves. You know, we, I don't want to force them, to learn a Japanese culture that they're not interested in at this point, because it doesn't really matter. You will find your cognitive dissonance where you find it. And so I think that that's more important that you find it yourself. Wonderful. Okay. Also... Last
0: question. Okay. What, what advice do you have for, for listeners? I mean, you've lived a very wonderful, adventurous life. What advice do you have for listeners?
1: I, 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 th- I always thought that Oscar Wilde said it best that, the worst vice of all is advice.
0: Mm. Um, that, that's the answer right there, my friend. Figure it out.
1: Is read this book because this will be the best you read, you read all year. How about that?
0: I love that. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. I mean, it's,
0: been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, and, and when um, Talking Funny for Money comes out, yeah. I'll have to have you back on.
1: <laughs> okay. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the book and uh, I hope you make it through. And um, yeah, let me know. Oh, but... well.
0: Once again, that was Simon Prentice, author of Speech How Language Made Us Human. One of the things that stood out for me in our conversation was how uh, Simon mentions the three false gods of identity, religion, and culture and how these can actually create ideas although unconscious of uh, superiority uh, of ourselves and our own consciousness our own our own schema if you will our own understanding and how we have this idea of inferiority of others and he says that this is this is across the board for cultures this is this is something that we all that is perhaps innate within us. So how can we begin to undo that? And I think, it again, it starts with a level of awareness and experiencing those uncomfortable moments and really stepping into that. Again, I think cognitive dissonance is the key to youth and it's the key to growth. So be sure to pick up Simon Prentice's book. It's amazing. It's available on Amazon. You can get it, uh, I think it's like 20 bucks. Money well spent because you can't put a price on knowledge. Although you can, I think it's called post-secondary school. But anyways, it's a great book. Check it out. Uh, one thing I, I have to say for you is a question for the audience is if we all spoke the same language, if we all were able to communicate uh with us being able to understand each other regardless of our language or our background, would that create a world without conflict? Is that the key to conflict, is our misunderstanding of each other? So let us know your thoughts. Email us at robsprobablywrong at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.